Hello and welcome to Chapter 7 of Walt Disney by Neil Gabler. It was not much of a studio. Its primary assets were the Laughlet's Reel and the Four Musicians, a fairy tale animation that Walt valued at $3,000 and equipment that he valued at less than $1,500. He had intended to finance the operation with his own money and whatever loans he could catch from his trainees. Ising pitched in $1,000, but he realized that he could raise more funds by incorporating and he wound up giving Ising shares of the company rather than repaying him. Laughagram was capitalized at $15,000, about half of which was cash and equipment, divided into 300 shares valued at $50 each. Walt took 70 and parceled out smaller numbers of shares to a few friends and to his young associates. Still, he had to secure the rest of the money, several thousand dollars after the broker's substantial cut, to rent an office and studio, pay the staff, and buy supplies. The challenge was for someone so young, and with only the laughograms to his credit to attract investors, Walt Disney was certainly persuasive. Quite a salesman, Rudy Ising said. He was boyish, enthusiastic, and garrulous, and had a way of filling one with enthusiasm, too, as he described his plans, which he loved to do, as his nights with the Francises attested. He had to be persuasive, since the probable success of the enterprise for which he was soliciting funds, run by a young man with no managerial experience, who employed younger men with even less experience, was by any measure a long shot. Roy contributed some money and kept contributing $30 here and there from his disability checks, but Walt Disney's real angel at Laughagram was a well-connected Kansas City doctor named John V. Cowles. Walt had probably met Cowles through another flamboyant speculator, Walt's Uncle Robert, with whom Cowles was very likely associated in an oil refinery scheme for which the doctor himself was seeking investors at the time. Tall and heavy set, with a thick shock of hair that turned snow that turned snow white as he aged, and with a pronounced limp that was the result of a riding accident, possibly incurred during a brief stint at West Point, Cowles was both an ostentatious figure in Kansas City and a prominent one. He had been born there and had attended the university the University of Missouri and then the university's medical school. He returned home to build a lucrative practice as a surgeon-slash-general practitioner. Thomas Pendergast, the head of the, city, of the city's notorious Democratic political machine, and Harry Truman, later U.S. Senator and President, were among his patients and friends. His success was evident in his large office downtown above the Main Street, above the Main Street Bank and in his palatial home on 34th Street. But it was not as a medical practitioner that John Cowles was primarily known in Kansas City. It was as a fixer. From his association with Pendergast, he knew people, and people knew he was politically connected, which is why they sought his help. He was also regarded highly for his financial acumen and even advised the First National Bank on investments. He was usually on the lookout for new investment schemes, which is no doubt how he hooked up with Robert Disney. Walt never said how he convinced Cowles to invest, though Uncle Robert's intercession probably helped, and Cowles' son claimed that his father could be very generous with supplicants. Dad was always helping people out. Those first months, the doctor provided $2,500 under his wife's signature. 
Realizing he did not have enough money to procrastinate, Walt moved quickly. He rented two small Spartan rooms on the top floor of the two-story McConaughey building on 31st Street, 31st Street, just a few blocks from his old house on Bellefontaine. Within weeks, he had the Motion Picture News, a prominent film trade paper, announce his company's launch. They will produce laugh-a-gram animated cartoon comedies, which will be cartooned by Walter E. Disney, though the ad also claimed that he had been making films for the Newman Theater for two years and that he had already completed six films, neither of which was true. That same month, he bought a new tripod, and in July, he took out his first advertisement in the news, promising a series of 12 films, presumably the fairy tales. At the same time he was hiring, Hugh Harmon, Fred's brother, joined Walt as an animator, as did Walt's old trainee, Rudy Ising, and two others. Carmen Maxwell, a junior college student who was hired when he saw the lavagram sign in the office window and applied for a job, and a young man named Lori Take. William Red Leon, who had run the camera at the film ad company, became the camera operator at Lafagram. An animator, Otto Wallerman, joined them later. Walt also secured the services of a business manager, Adolf Kloper, and a salesman, Leslie Mace. A few months later, his old friend Walt Pfeiffer, who had continued his art training after high school at the Art Institute in Chicago, before returning to Kansas City, became Lafagram's scenario editor, which, he admitted, meant he subscribed to newspapers and scoured them for jokes. Disney had a staff, but he did not have a contract for his animations, of which there was only one at the time he placed his motion picture news ad. Though certain of success as he always was, Walt seemed unaware of the generally weak market for cartoons at the time. No one went to the movies to see animations, and distributors did not feel the need to pay premium prices for them. As the seating capacity of theaters grew during the theater-building boom of the late 1910s and early 1920s, and admission prices rose, cartoons were essentially add-ons meant to fill out a two-hour program that typically included a feature film, a one- or two-reel live-action comedy, a newsreel and a serial, and less frequently a travelogue, a dramatic short, or even a live vaudeville performance. According to one 1922 survey, 73% of theaters used a two-reel live comedy, 59% own a newsreel, and 35% a serial, but only 23% featured a cartoon, which meant that Walt was not entering the most lucrative of fields. He soon discovered that for himself. After his motion picture news ad elicited only tepid responses, Walt sent Mace, who had been a local sales representative for Paramount Pictures, to New York in mid-August to hunt for a distributor. Mace was accompanied by Dr. Cowles, who had gone there to press his oil scheme. But Mace had no more success in person than he had with the ad. As Adolph Kloper, the business manager, later told it, Mace was staying at the McAlpine Hotel, and the bills were amounting to more than the amount of money that we had in the bank. Walt had already ordered Mace home in defeat when apparently at the very last moment the sales manager concluded a deal with William R. Kelly, a representative of the Tennessee branch of Pictorial Clubs Incorporated, which distributed films primarily to church and school groups. It was not exactly a rescue. The Tennessee branch of Pictorial Clubs was every bit as inconsequential as it sounded, and the deal Mace made with them was as inconsequential as Pictorial itself. It was also one-sided, though the contract called for 11 
$11,100 for six animations to be delivered by January 1, 1924. It also stipulated that Pictorial need put down only $100 on signing, and that the remaining 11000 was not due until that delivery date almost 18 months away. This meant, in effect, that the company would be working for nothing with only the prospect of a payout. Mace, perhaps recognizing the corner into which he had painted the company, left Laughagram almost immediately upon his return to Kansas City. Walt had to parlay that promise into the repayment of old debts and the generation of new funds. Upon the signing on September 16th, he immediately assigned the contract to Fred Schmelz, the owner of a local hardware store, who had advanced Walt money and equipment to repay him, and in Schmelz's capacity as trustee to repay the $2,500 that Laughagram already owed Mrs. Cowles, as well as smaller sums the company owed as back pay to its employees. Early that September, even before the pictorial deal had been finalized, Walt had taken out ads in the Kansas City Journal and the Post, seeking another scenario writer. He advertised in both the men's and women's sections and girls with artistic ability for mounting pictures, cartooning. Now that he had a contract in hand, that November he also convinced iWorks to leave the film ad company and join him to do the lettering for the titles and some animation. In a sign of confidence, he grandly offered iWorks $50 a week. This was more of Walt's dizzy unreality. For all of his studying and experimenting, no one at Laughagram really knew very much about animation, at least not enough for them to function as a studio. Our only study was the Lutz book, said Hugh Harmon, that plus Paul Terry's films. We used to get them at the exchange through a girl who worked there and then take scissors and clip out maybe 50 or 75 feet to scrutinize. We learned a lot from Terry. Similarly, Walt Pfeiffer said he would get a new Crazy Cat cartoon, bring it to the studio, and run it so that the animators could determine how the New York professionals did it. And it was not only animation technique that they lacked, but basic drawing skills as well. At one point, Walt even held an art class because, according to Rudy Ising, Walt had the idea that maybe we should learn to draw a little better. They were groping, learning as they went, improvising even their equipment. The camera stand was made of 4 by 4s with a plank laid on them and Walt's universal camera mounted above. A chain led from the camera to a crank. One turn of the crank met one frame exposed in the camera. Characters were traced from model sheets to ensure consistency, but the sheets, which corresponded to full shot, medium shot, and close-up, also restricted flexibility. And though Walt used cells, it was not until the third cartoon that Ising suggested that they draw directly on the cell rather than paste drawings onto it. Yet the groping sometimes resulted in improvements. At the New York studios, the pegs that held the paper in place were at the top of the drawing board, away from the animator's hands. Walt put them at the bottom of the board so that animators could more easily flip the pages and see the action. There was one area, however, in which Walt Disney did not improvise. Realizing that if he could not yet challenge the New York animators in their drawing prowess, he could at least challenge them in their narrative deficiencies, he did what the New York animators almost never did. He wrote out his scenarios in scrupulous detail as if they were live-action scripts. His story for Cinderella began flash to close-up of one fat lady in hammock reading Eat and Grow Thin, another girl very, another girl very skinny sitting in chair. They are eating out of it. 
Slim Girl puts down book. She is cross-eyed. She begins talking to Fat Girl. Fat Girl answers back. And the margins and blue pencil were the initials of the animators for each scene. D for Walt himself, H for Harmon, R for Ising, and U for Iwerks. The pressure to finish quickly was intense. They had no money, but Walt did not allow the financial strains to subvert his other purpose, to forge a community to replace the family he had lost. Only one of the employees, Lori Taig, was married. The others, who had neither responsibilities nor romantic entanglements, formed an infantile gang of pranksters and hams. A friend who visited Walt's office at the time asked Walt if he was making any money. You smiled and said no, but you was having fun. Again, I thought, will he ever grow up? Walt Pfeiffer said that the group arrived at the office at nine each morning and stayed until midnight. It was more fun than pay, he recalled. You didn't look at it as work. Adolph Klopper spoke of the happy spirit that existed that we could still laugh and appreciate a good gag. I will remember, too, that we all had many belly laughs when discussing a story or material, and Walt would explode some wild gag to incorporate in the story. Sometimes they would head to the roof of the building and pose for the camera, or they would go to nearby Truist Lake and shoot footage of themselves. On weekends, the staff took out the universal camera and prowled the streets, looking for accidents. If they failed to find one, they would often stage one to shoot. On one occasion, thinking that the universal camera was not impressive looking enough, they rigged two large cans to a box and then cruised, pretending to film. People would come up and pose and say, where are you from? Rudy Ising said, and we'd say New York. The fun was a compensation for and a release from the constant duress of scratching for money. The studio was a wonderful club, but Walt was a poor manager and, by his own admission, incautious with money. Of his father's frugality, Walt said, I didn't inherit any of that thrift. It will take another 5000 to put the place over, Red Leon, the cameraman, wrote his mother that October. An additional fifty or 100000 to put in a real production plant next spring. We originally capitalized only enough to get out four pictures of our series. Our fifth is nearly done. But despite the pressure and the lack of funds, he said, I'm going to sit tight. I have the greatest opportunity I've ever had, and I'm in for everything but my false teeth. The next month, Cowles loaned Walt another $2,500, but it only tided them over. Walt's checks kept bouncing, Ising recalled. All of us eventually worked for nothing. Already, a process server was, visit was visiting the office, asking for Mr. Dinsey. Several times, Walt fended him off by insisting that Mr. Dinsey was not there until Walt Pfeiffer called Walt's name when the server happened to be in the office, and Walt confessed, Yeah, I'm Walt Disney, but my name is Disney, not Dinsey. Within two weeks of his writing, his mother that... Within two weeks of writing his mother that he was in for everything, Leon now wrote her that the company was worse than broke, $2,000 in debt and losing $4,000 more each week, and that he was going to try and sell his stock, loan the money to the company, and possibly quit and get me something more sure. Still, he said that they had been turning out some real pictures. These were the skewed fairy tales, a puss in boots where a cat convinces a young suitor that he can win a princess's hand by emulating Rudolph Vasilino, a send-up of silent film heartthrob Rudolph Valentino, and winning a bullfight, or Red Riding Hood where Red is chased by a young man in a fliver while her granny is off at the movies. 
though the financial situation was never less than dire almost from the company's inception, Walt maintained his peculiar confidence and persistence. He had the drive and ambition of ten million men, claimed a secretary who was dating a photographer across the hall and did some of Walt's clerical work at the time. It was an indication of both his desperation and his ingenuity that by the end of October, he had taken out yet another newspaper ad, this one declaring that Laughagram had added the feature of, photog of, photo of photographing youngsters to its regular business of making animated cartoons and offering customers a projection service to show the films. In effect, Walt was angling to shoot baby pictures to keep Laughagram afloat. As the company continued to sink, there was more scrambling. A month later, probably through the intercession of Dr. Cowles, Walt was approached by a dentist named Thomas B. McCrum of the Diener Dental Institute in Kansas City. McCrum would receive grants of $500 from local merchants to finance educational films on dental hygiene, and he asked if Laughagram might be interested in producing one Tommy Tucker's Tooth about two boys. Jimmy Jones, who did not take proper care of his teeth and was thus denied a job, and Tommy Tucker, who did exercise mental hygiene and won the job. Walt quickly agreed, but when McCrum asked Walt to come to the Institute to finalize the deal, Walt had to demur. He had left his only pair of shoes at the shoemaker's and did not have the dollar fifty he needed to retrieve them. McCrum, who lived just down the street from Walt, offered to pay the shoemaker and then pick Walt up to close the deal. Walt recruited the cast from local schools, including Benton, and shot during school hours once or twice weekly that December. The film included a brief animated section showing bacteria with pickaxes hacking away at teeth. Walt Disney, at each filming, knew exactly what he wanted us to do and how we were to do it, remembered John Records, who played Jimmy Jones. We all liked him immediately. Records told another interviewer that it was obvious Walt liked kids and knew how to handle them. At the end of the shooting, he brought them into the office where the animators were bent over their desks working on the fairy tales and rewarded the children with five or ten dollar bills. But the fifty or sixty dollars Walt had... Walt said he finally cleared from the film hardly provided a respite, especially when the Tennessee branch of pictorial clubs declared bankruptcy just months after concluding its deal with Laughagram. The New York parent of pictorial assumed the assets of its Tennessee outlet, but none of that company's debts, triggering a long process of Laughagram trying to enforce a contract for which it had already done significant work and toward which it had a substantial obligation. By early January 1923, with the economic pressure intensifying, Walt was being dunned by his landlord for failure to pay the office rent, and it was only through the largesse of Dr. Cowles again that the company eventually covered that debt, the light and telephone bills, and the salary still owed the departed Leslie Mace. Still, even with the loans from Cowles and from hardware store empresario Fred Schmeltz, the firm had nothing to spare. Cloper recalled leaving Cowles's office with Walt after picking up the payroll one Friday and seeing a dollar bill in the gutter. I think we both made a grab for it, Cloper said, but I got the dollar bill, and I held it up and I said, Walt, we're going to have lunch, and we did on the dollar bill. But Walt the go-getter still had not surrendered hopes for success. 
with no money in the offing from pictorial or any other source, he presented a new scheme that February. He announced a series of shorts that would combine animated cartoons and spicy jokes. In truth, he had already done so with the laughlets, and he simply hired a woman to detach them from the beginning of the fairy tales and re-edit them for distribution. That month, he began contacting New York distributors, among them Universal Pictures, even writing another prospective buyer in an, in an obvious attempt at brinkmanship that Universal was considering the Laughlets. This campaign also proved fruitless. We have looked at your product and think the animation is extremely good, H.A. Boshi, Universal's general manager, wrote Cloaper on April 4th, but we do not see how we can place it on our release program at the present time. Another distributor responded that we do not believe we would have any trouble whatsoever placing your laughlets with one of the better distributors on a percentage basis, but like all the nibbles, this one came to naught. With the Laughlet's gambit having failed, Walt now hatched yet another plan of aesthetic bravado. For several months, inspired, he said, by a series created by New York animators Max and Dave Flesher, entitled Out of the Inkwell, in which cartoon figures entered a real world, he had been thinking about a live-action animation combination, though he wrote one putative animator that doing so was very trying and expensive, and had not proven profitable as yet. In March, once again running out of money and alternatives, he decided to ignore those impediments and attempt another series that he thought might, in his words, crack the market and save the company. We have just discovered something new and clever in animated cartoons, he gushingly wrote a number of distributors, describing his innovation as a variation on Out of the Inkwell out of the inkwell, but of an entirely different nature, using a cast of live child actors who carry on their action on cartoon scenes with cartoon characters. He anticipated one-reelers, roughly seven minutes in duration, to be released every two weeks or once a month. Specifically, the series would feature a little girl named Alice, like Alice in Wonderland, who entered a cartoon world and interacted with cartoon characters. For the lead role, he chose a precocious blonde four-year-old named Virginia Davis, a child actress whom he had seen in an advertisement made by the film ad company for Warnicker's Bread. Davis later said that she ate a piece of bread slathered with jam, smiled broadly, and smacked her lips. He offered no salary. He did not have any to give, but promised her parents 5% of any money he received for the film, which he had titled Alice's Wonderland. The deal evidently included the use of the Davis's home as the set. Though in May, Walt had assured distributors that Alice's Wonderland would be finished very soon, this was more wishful thinking. In addition to having to scrape for financing, the month they began shooting, they were evicted from the McConaughey building and moved into new quarters above the Isis Theater on the second floor of the Worthman building just up the street. Excuse me. Already in June, Walt was writing one distributor that he had not completed the film as planned due to numerous delays and backsets or sitbacks, but that he fully expected to take a print with him to New York in July. By this time, many of the staff, including Iwerks, who had been paid only fitfully, had departed the company, and Pfeiffer had returned to Chicago. In the end, there would not be money enough for a New York trip. There would not be money enough for anything save finishing Alice's Wonderland, and Walt wound up doing virtually all of the animation himself. 
We twice had to move during the night because we couldn't pay the rent, Rudy Ising said. There was not even enough money for food. We didn't ever have three square meals a day, Carmen Maxwell recalled. My mom used to mail us a cake once in a while, and that was really something. Walt and the others would take meals at the Forest Inn Cafe on the first floor of the McConaughey Building, where the owners, Jerry Ragos and Louis Katzis, extended them credit, and when the credit ran out, Nadine Simpson, the secretary who was dating the photographer Baron Baron Masakian across the hall from Laughagram, typed menus in exchange for their meals. Walt paid his own bill by taking pictures of Ragos's baby. When my credit ran out, I was tempted to go and eat, order my meal, and tell them I couldn't pay, Walt remembered, but I didn't have the nerve. I was so damn hungry. Instead, he lived on leftovers from Misakian's photo shoots until Ragos caught him scavenging and decided to extend him credit once again. And if there was no money for food, there was no money to live either. At the time he made Alice, he was rooming in a two-story wooden frame house at 3415 Charlotte Street, owned by Mrs. Gertrude McBride, who who generously let Walt stay, even after he had fallen $25 behind in the rent. He would repay her a decade later, but eventually he left and slept on rolls of canvas and cushions in the office. He slept there for quite some time in order to save money, Clover remembered, and subsisted on cold beans he ate from a can. Walt had gotten so thin that Mrs. McBride McBride was sure he had tuberculosis like his brother. He took his baths once a week at Union Station, where he paid a dime for the privilege. Without a staff or finances, Laughagram was now a shell. It did not even own its one asset, Alice's Wonderland, because Fred Schmeltz, in advancing his periodic loans, including the rent at the Wortham building that July, had secured them with a Chattel mortgage on virtually all Laughagram's equipment and products, among which was the new cartoon. Though in March, the stockholders had decided to recapitalize at $50,000, and though the plan had been approved by the state in July, this was a finan- this was financial bluster. Nothing was left of Laughagram, and it had no hope of producing more cartoons. Walt tried one last desperate scheme to save the company, trying to interest the Kansas City Post in a weekly newsreel, but that failed too. That seemed to wash up all prospects in Kansas City, he said. It was over. Uncle Robert advised him that his only recourse now was to leave Kansas City, and Roy told him he should get out of there. I don't think you can do any more for it. Though Walt said he could have technically avoided responsibility by claiming that he was a minor at the time of the company's incorporation, he chose instead to declare bankruptcy. In any case, no one seemed to blame Walt for Laughagram's demise. At no time did anybody enter a claim, said Nadine Simpson, not entirely accurately, as we all knew it was the fault of no one person, especially Walt's. Roy attributed the problem to Walt's associates. Thinking either of pictorial or of schmelz, he said that Walt had gotten mired down with crooks. Rudy Ising saw problems elsewhere. He attributed the company's failure to location. Our ideas were great, but we were in the wrong area. Kansas City wasn't the place for this kind of work. But with his grand scheme for an animation studio dashed, Walt once again seemed surprisingly blithe. 
Throughout the failures, the fairy tales, laughlets, and Alice's Wonderland, throughout the days without meals and nights with restless sleep, throughout the constant begging for funds from Cowles and Schmelz and even Roy, throughout it all, Walt Disney seemed never to lose faith. I never once heard Walt say anything that would sound like defeat, Cloper remembered. He was always optimistic about his ability and about the value of his ideas and about the possibilities of cartoons in the entertainment field. Never once did I hear him express anything except determination to go ahead. Phineas Rosenberg, the attorney who handled the bankruptcy, concurred. Most people filing for bankruptcy are disturbed or bitter, he said. Walt wasn't. He seemed confident beyond any logical reason for him to be so. It appeared that nothing could discourage him. In later years, he would say that he was constitutionally imperturbable, free of doubt, and happy, always happy. I have no recollection of ever being unhappy in my life, he once said. I was happy all the time. I was excited. I was doing things. But this was also for show. Though Walt normally did... Though Walt normally did possess a kind of intrepid faith, a child's faith that things would turn out right, which explains his doggedness and his myopia at the time of the Lavagram bankruptcy, at the age of 21 he was less unaffected than he may have seemed or wanted others to think. He was, he later admitted, crushed and heartbroken, crushed at having failed and heartbroken at having disappointed so many who had trusted in him and had lost money for their trust. That first big setback got me right down and out. He swore he would make good and pay the creditors back. At the same time, he said that the Lafagram bankruptcy had left him, had left him tougher, more determined, and inured to failure. Now he thought only, only of leaving Kansas City, leaving the failure. He considered going to either New York or Hollywood, then settled on the latter where Roy was now recuperating and where Uncle Robert had relocated. He needed to leave. He would visit Union Station and stand there with tears in my eyes and look at the trains going out. I was all alone. I was very lonesome. He still had no money. He lived now at Iwerks' house or with the Cowles family, but he did but he did have a contact. Carl Stalling, the organist at the Isis Theater in the same building to which Lafagram had moved before its collapse. Through Stalling, Walt managed to get a contract from the Jenkins Music Company to make what he called a song a reel, a live-action film with lyrics posted on the title cards, allowing the audience to sing along with the musical accompaniment. With his production of Martha, just a plain old-fashioned name, based on a song by Joe L. Sanders, Walt earned just enough money to buy a used motion picture camera on trial. He developed the negatives himself to cut, to cut costs. He spent the next two weeks, as he had in the early days of Lafagram, going door-to-door in a well-to-do residential section of Kansas City, looking for parents who might want films of their children. Again, he developed the negatives and printed the film himself, making 10 to $15 per job, which allowed him to pay off the camera and save enough for a train ticket to Los Angeles. When a movie fan decided he wanted to make his own films, Walt sold him the camera for twice what he had paid, thus giving him a little extra for his trip. 
Years later, Mrs. Kathleen Viley would claim that she and her husband, Dr. Leland Viley, had helped bankroll Walt at Lafagram with $6,000, and then, after he photographed their six-month-old daughter that July, gave him another $3,000 to go to California. Walt acknowledged photographing the Viley's baby and earning enough to go to California, but there is no evidence whatsoever that the Viley's staked Walt in any other way. It was a bittersweet departure. Before he left, he visited the people to whom he owed money, telling them that he had resolved to go west and offering small partial payments. He gave most of his personal belongings to the Harmon brothers with the directive that they be sold and the, proteeth, and the proceeds distributed to his creditors, including Jerry Ragos. Of Laughagram's remaining assets, Hugh Harmon, Rooney Ising, and Carmen Maxwell got a note for $302 from Schmeltz, allowing them to purchase most of the animation equipment, after which they set up their own short-lived animation studio, Arabian Nights Cartoons. A thousand and one laughs. The other creditors, according to Walt, wished him well, told him he would need a grub stake for California, and graciously said he could send the money when he succeeded. Even so, Walt left behind a mess and left the hapless Iwerks, who probably at Walt's behest, filed the bankruptcy petition and others to sort it out. The petition was granted in October, but it would be years before all the claims would be resolved. Years during which Pictorial was finally successfully pressured for the remaining $11,000 on its contract, plus an additional $1,000 years, during which Schmelz's priority from his Chateau mortgage would be challenged, and years during which the court would approve a settlement of roughly 45 cents on the dollar. He spent his last night in Kansas City having dinner with Edna Francis and complaining about his business misfortunes. The next day, the mother of Louise Rast, his brother, Herbert, his brother Herbert's wife, prepared three bags of meals for him to eat on the train trip west and loaned Walt a suit of her son's clothes. He did not have a suit of his own, only a pair of loud threadbare black and white checked trousers, a checkered jacket, a gabardine raincoat, and an old brown cardigan. His suitcase was frayed cardboard, half of which was packed not with clothes but with animation equipment, and his only extravagance was a $5 pair of walkover shoes he had bought with the money from the sale of the camera. He was driven to Union Station by a friend of Louise's brother, a man whose main boast in life, according to William Rast, would later be, I took Walt Disney to the station when he went to Hollywood. There was, Walt said, no one to see him off, though Rudy Isinger later recalled that he had some of the other Laughagram veterans, that he and some of the other Laughagram veterans were on the platform filming his departure. Of Kansas City, where Walt had lived for 10 of his nearly 22 years, he said he learned there what it meant to shift for myself, to take advantage of opportunity, and the thing which every American kid must learn, to take the hard knocks with the good breaks. Kansas City had provided a tough lesson for an essentially carefree young man, but he was leaving with his hope intact. It was a big day, the day I got on that Santa Fe, California Limited, he remembered. He was free and happy, and he remembered another feeling, too, a more powerful feeling as if he were lit up inside by incandescent lights. Bruised by disappointment in Kansas City, Walt Disney was now heading toward what he was certain, even now, would be success. The go-getter was heading to Hollywood. Stay tuned for next week's installment.
Wonderful Reads is a great free reading podcast, isn't it? If you agree, you can support the podcast by sharing it with friends and family, posting about it on social media, joining our Facebook group, and purchasing Sierra Spencer's books. To join our Facebook group, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one backslash that's https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one If you would like to purchase our current book, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash. The book is purchasable at https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash.